Welcome to the Change Management Review Podcast, where we bring the best of change management to you. In this From the Field episode, Managing Editor Brian Gorman interviews Jessica Bronzer, founder of the Sparks Group on Vertical Development for Leading in Turbulent Times. We hope you enjoy this installment of the Change Management Review Podcast. Hello, this is Brian Gorman, Managing Editor of Change Management Review. And today I have the honor, really, of welcoming our guest, Jessica Bronzert. As an executive coach and change consultant and the founder of the Sparks Group, Jessica's passion is helping leaders and teams develop not just the skills, but also the capacity they need to be personally and professionally successful in the face of ever-increasing change and complexity. Motivated by the diversity of the human experience and organizational life, Jessica employs her MBA, specialized change and coaching training, and years of corporate and nonprofit experience to help clients make the changes that make a difference to them and in the world. Jessica has been doing some exceptional work in the area of vertical development and change management review is putting this podcast on the air in conjunction with releasing a series of six of Jessica's articles on that topic. Jessica, thank you for being here. Welcome. Oh, thank you for having me. I'm glad to be here. So let's start with the basics. What is vertical development? Mm -hmm. Yeah, it's a great place to start because so many people uh, are not familiar with this term. And uh, hopefully some of you have heard of it who are listening. But my guess is that many people have not. What we describe as vertical development is really a way. uh, We also talk about horizontal development. And so as a way of explaining vertical development, let me also explain horizontal development. So we think about horizontal development as skills, competencies, um, things that we know, knowledge um, that we learn from experts. So you can think of it as adding more tools to your toolkit, um, which is incredibly important for our growth and doing our work in the world. However, it is insufficient. And vertical development is really the complementary piece that we are finding is ever more critical and important to lead in the change in complexity that we're seeing. Um, And what vertical development is, if horizontal development is what we know or what we think, or vertical development is how we think, our capacity to deal with complexity and systems and the increasing interdependence that's in the world. So vertical development is really about our ability to navigate through the change and complexity that we find. And horizontal development is about the the skills and competencies that we can bring to bear wherever we are, wherever we are. So as you talk about vertical development, um, is it where at at some level of ability to think, and then we jump to the next level and that's it? Or are there different stages along the way? 
Yeah, so there are there are different stages of vertical development. So many of us are already familiar with this concept of vertical development because it's something that we experience throughout our lives and especially as children. So it's actually a psychological construct. Um, if we use a couple of examples from uh, childhood, we can think about a baby who, when we hide the rattle behind our back, the baby thinks that the rattle has disappeared and doesn't exist anymore, right? And then the baby, um, the baby matures psychologically and realizes that the rattle um, is still in existence, even though they can't see it. They understand psychologically object permanence, right? And that is an example of vertical development. They don't have a new skill. What they have is more capacity to understand that even though the rattle isn't in their view, they, um, it, it still exists. And another example is sort of teenagers and risk-taking, right? We talk about how teenagers like to take risks. Um, and eventually, most of us grow out of that, uh, that ability to judge risk better and make better decisions about that. So those are examples of vertical development that happen in childhood. And culturally, we are very comfortable talking about um, vertical development in childhood. And psychologists used to believe that... Uh, your vertical development stopped by the time you were 18 or 21, like a young adult. And now we know that's not true. And any of us who are really past the age of 21 or so can look back at who we were when we were 21 and have a good chuckle and be thankful that that's not not really how we look at the world anymore. Um, But what we know about vertical development in adults is that it is it is not automatic the way it is in children. Children are sort of in, um, pulled along almost automatically through those, through those stages. But in adults, it's a little more optional. It can be, um, there are several, uh, several sort of triggers that would cause someone to grow vertically. But what we now know is there are stages of adult development that there are a few different models out there. We're going to talk about one of them today, but there, there are, there are descriptors, there are markers that sort of help us understand where somebody is in their meaning making from a vertical perspective. So, um, Jessica, could you walk us through some of the stages that we as adults might travel through? Yeah, um, I'm going to hit on these um, pretty quickly because there are, I'm going to talk about um, seven of them, and the article series is going to go into much more detail about these. But um, and the model that I'm going to share is from Vertical Development Academy. This is work by Suzanne Cook Greider. Um, there are a number of uh, thinkers in this space, and they all have slightly different models that are generally, you know, generally the same. But um, just to, to anchor folks on the one that I'm going to share, the first stage. Um, as, uh, as, as we are sort of coming into adulthood or beginning our journey on adult development is the self-centric stage. And this is, um, unfortunately, probably something we're seeing play out in our national politics right now in the United States. Um, people who are, uh, have a, what we call a center of gravity where we are making meaning from most of the time. People who have a center of gravity as self-centric are interested in winning in any way possible. They're very um, oriented towards getting their own needs and wants met. They sort of believe that might makes right and um, applying force is an okay way to, to do things. Um, this can be a really great way of looking at the world when there are emergencies and things just need to happen. 
Um, sales is also a really great fit for people who are uh, making meaning at self-centric. Um, however, it's not a great place for leaders, right? Nobody really wants to follow somebody who is only interested in, in getting their own needs met. Fortunately, very few adults are at the self-centric stage. The next stage, which also does not have a large percentage of adults, maybe only about um, 10%, um, I think less than 1% of the adult population is at self-centric. About 10% of the population is at the next stage called group-centric. Um, what happens to folks at this stage is they become highly identified with um, some some group that they are in. It might be their family. It might be their church. It might be their place of work. It might be uh, some kind of a team that they're on. Um, but they really want to belong to the group. And the idea here is that you're obeying group norms. You don't want to rock the boat. It's very much about keeping relationships and loyalty. Um and and so the the result of that is a very conflict avoidant way of looking at the world and wanting things to sort of uh, be the same, if you will. So the advantages of this stage are uh, can be really fabulous on teams in terms of helping to provide cohesion to the team and um, helping the team stay together. But the outcome orientation of a team is not as much of a strength for group-centric, right? So this is more about keeping the status quo and keeping relationships the same than it is about getting things done. Feedback is tough here um, and, and really preferencing the work or the task over the relationship is going to be difficult. So again, not really well-suited to leadership or change. The next two stages are where about 80% of the adult population sits skill-centric, and then self-determining. So skill-centric has about 30 to 40% of the adult population in it. And this, the folks who are making meaning here are very interested in their knowledge and their subject matter expertise, um, very interested in data. And they really believe that there is a right answer to things, that it can be found out, and that if we just follow and do what the experts say, we will be in good shape. So this this stage has a tremendous amount of value in organizational life because we need people who can solve problems and who know the answers and and are very you know detail oriented in 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 their area of expertise. So these folks make really great individual contributors. They are the workhorses of the organization. On the flip side, um, emotional intelligence is not often a strength at this stage, and there can sometimes be a um, a holier-than-thou aspect that comes along with this one, that I'm the smartest person in the room, and if the rest of you would just listen to me, um, that would be fine. And so there's not a huge correlation with effective leadership at this stage either, um, because there's not really an ability to collaborate or, or bring other people along. Self-determining, the next stage, another 30 to 40% of the adult population, those things really change. So teamwork begins to come online at self-determining. People are able to look forward and, and meet strategic goals a little bit more effectively. Um, this is really a good stage where we see a lot of managers and early stage leaders. So people who can, can direct the work of the other, of other people, help solve their problems and get people moving in, in the same direction. The downside of self-determining, however, one is that people work really hard when they're at this stage because they are very interested in outcomes and they just want to keep producing them over and over again. And maybe a lack of creativity, not as much thinking outside the box. 
So about 80% of the adult population kind of stops their development in those two stages. Only about 20% of the adult population continues on to the later three stages of the model, which are self-questioning, self-actualizing, and construct-aware. In the self-questioning stage, often what will happen is people come out of self-determining pretty tired. They might be burned out. They're really questioning why they're doing all this work and that will it ever end. And so self-questioning is is exactly what it sounds like. It is a questioning of all of those um, ways of thinking that have sort of constituted life up to that point. Folks who have a center of gravity and self-questioning can be pretty unconventional. They can be a little bit rebellious. Um, they tend to, to think that all the rules are made up and that uh, if they don't like the rules, they're going to ignore them. So this can be very effective. The advantage of this stage is that it can be very effective in consulting or in entrepreneurial kinds of ventures where there's a little bit of a need to, you know, uh, call out, call out the thing that doesn't make sense or to take a little bit of risk. But it can be frustrating to work with somebody who's in self-questioning because they're not rule followers, because they're not sort of bound by, bound by these processes and, um, and people, the sort of the way things are done around here is not really a major consideration for them. Self-actualizing um, is the next stage after that. And this is the stage that is most highly correlated with effective leadership, business outcomes, and transformational change. This is the big one. So this is unfortunately not a lot of people make it to this stage, but this is a stage where leaders can achieve and sustain those transformational outcomes that are so needed in the world today. So they're highly collaborative. They are able to be visionary and pragmatic at the same time. Um, they really are able to challenge existing assumptions. There is a lot of capacity available at the self-actualizing stage. And so the major advantage here is the ability to generate transformation in the near term and in the long term. In the long term. The downside of this stage is that self-actualizing folks can come across as distant and judgmental occasionally, um, that they really are thinking about the world in a pretty different place, in a pretty different way than many other people are, and that can feel disconnecting um, to, both, to both parties. So, And the last stage, um, which is less than 1% of the adult population ever gets sort of all the way out here. And this is, I should say, this is as far as we know the stages go right now, but there may be other stages beyond this. Um, construct aware uh, folks are able to generate societal transformation. So think about Nelson Mandela, Martin Luther King Jr. Um, these are folks who can reinvent organizations in historically significant ways. So really even a higher order level of transformation. Um, however, the downside is they can feel very lonely at this, this very late stage, very disconnected from, um, from other people. So that's a, I, you know, I'm going to stop there. That is a really, really quick overview of, um, one model of vertical development that you can read more about in the, in the series of articles. Thank you. That's, um, it's, it's intriguing to me, uh, for any number of reasons, but one question that, that comes up immediately is around the self-questioning stage. Because as I listen to you, I can see how each of the the advances um, helps prepare someone more significantly for leadership within an organization. And then you get to the self-questioning stage. And um, how do those people 
make it through that mm-hmm. stage and, and <laughs> remain successful in organizations mm-hmm. when they're, uh, you know, challenging and rule breaking and all those kinds of things. Mm-hmm. That's such a great question, Brian. Um, and you're picking up on a really significant, probably the most significant transition between stages in the model is between self-determining and self-questioning. Um, what happens is that people leave what's called the conventional tier, which includes uh, self-determining, skill-centric, and group-centric, and they transition into post-conventional meaning-making, which is self-questioning and everything beyond. And so that transition is not only a what we call a stage transition, but it is also a tier transition from conventional to post-conventional meaning-making. And it's significant. So what we sort of... Um, refer to in the in pop culture as a midlife crisis is often a self-questioning transition that's 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 unfolding um, where people are fundamentally dissatisfied or unhappy or there feels like this really significant tension and it can show up at work in 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 these sort of uh maybe less than helpful ways so it is safe to say that many people do decide at this point that organizational life, being an employee inside an organization with all of its norms and its rules is not something that's sustainable for them. So a lot of people, myself included, will leave um, organizational life at this point and start their own business or do something else in order to more fully express who they are. Um, Many people find a new way to be in relationship with their role, their job, their employer, their colleagues. Um, there is more capacity in self-questioning. There is more value from a late from a change in leadership perspective. Um, but there has to, you know, there as to your point, there needs to sort of be a new balance or a new relationship between how the person is showing up. That sort of rule, you know, sort of challenging rule-breaking element. And um, and what's expected of them at work, and so some people are able to navigate that, and some people are not. Some organizations are more tolerant than others, um, so I think that's a case by case basis. But that is a pretty significant uh, transition where we see, you know, a lot of people opting out of uh, traditional employment situations. Why not just skip the stage? <laughs> well, you, it would be nice if you could do that, but you can't. So the model is um, you, what we say unidirectional. Um, we go through these stages in a predictable order. It is how we how we grow as humans. And so it would be really great to just say, oh, I'm going to self-actualizing is sort of the, the best stage from a change in leadership perspective. I'm just going to do that. <clears throat> and And it would be nice if we could. We can intellectually... Once you get to self-determining, I should say, you can intellectually understand the whole model. You can understand what construct aware looks like, what self-actualizing looks like, what all of it looks like. But you cannot necessarily come from, air quotes, that stage. You can't embody it. You can't embody it, if that makes sense. You, you have to grow. And what we say is that it takes hmm, anywhere from three to five years to transition between stages. And so this is not a fast, not a fast process. And you can't, unlike learning a skill, a horizontal development thing where you could go to a class and learn Excel, that's not how vertical development works. So what we, the other thing I would say about that is that once you come through a stage, 
you still have access to it. So for example, I'm not self-centric anymore, but when I go to get on an airplane and I need a space for my carry-on bag in the overhead space, I can be self-centric, right? I can get on. I want to get on first. I want to find my the overhead space for my bag. And then when I sit down again, I I can relax and kind of be the bigger version of myself. For But for about five minutes there while I'm getting on the plane, my self-centric has reared its head and is doing its thing. <laughs> I've, I've met you there. <laughs> <laughs> Many of us have, right? That's why we all crowd around the gate. <laughs> so, Jessica, what motivates people to grow or to just stop where they are? What's the juice? Mm -hmm. Yeah, that's such a great question. So um, life experience is the big driver for growth in the vertical space. Um, There is often an invitation to grow vertically. And I say invitation, it doesn't really feel like an invitation because usually there's tension or difficulty or pain or unhappiness. We feel in over our heads in some way, shape, or form. And that is what causes us to say, gosh, the way I'm looking at the world just isn't working anymore. And I need to sort of unpack it and rebuild it or recraft it in a way that is going to accommodate for this new complexity that I'm experiencing. And so, you know, that's happening for a lot of us right now with COVID-19, coronavirus, our way of life at least temporarily, and we don't know for how long, has been significantly disrupted. And so many of us are in over our heads right now trying to figure out how to make sense of what's going on. So right now, globally, there is a for many, many, many of us, there is a huge invitation to grow vertically. Um, So difficult, you know, often it is difficulty or trauma or challenge that is that is, that invites that vertical development. Um, and then there are people who just like to grow, who view themselves as being on a journey and are kind of always looking for the next thing. So there, you know, there is a little bit of a difference in sort of people who are seeking it out versus when it happens to us, it happens to all of us sometimes, but, um, you know, that's, that's one of the other factors. So. So you and I, and, and our listeners and, and readers at, at change management, change management review are involved in the world of change and change management. I'm I'm going to ask you how you apply this model with your clients, but before I do, what is the relationship between vertical development and change management? Yeah, right. So why would change management review want to do a series on vertical development and why would a change practitioner care to be interested in this content. Here's why I think it's relevant. I essentially believe now that vertical development is the best answer we have for what good sponsorship of change looks like. So if you look at most of the change management models that are out there and you look at the sponsor role and you look at what defines a good sponsor, it's going to be a bunch of horizontal development ideas. They're going to be skills and competencies, right? They need to be uh, committed. They need to be persistent. They need to be... um, uh, strategic. They need to be when there's a long list of sort of skills and competencies or behaviors that sponsors need to exhibit. 
there is no indication in most models about capacity or the ability to deal with complexity and change and dynamic situations like we're seeing right now. And vertical development is that. Vertical development says, hey, you can have all the skills and competencies you want, but unless you have an advanced operating system, unless you have capacity to run those skills on, you're not going to be very effective. And so in my mind, vertical development is is a model for how we should think about leaders in change. It's the best model we have, in my opinion. Um, And that essentially, when we talk about leadership, we are talking about change. What does it mean to be a good leader? Increasingly, more and more, it means being able to implement, achieve, and sustain transformational change. And the vertical development model gives us a really great framework to think about that and a really great way to support people developing into greater and greater capacity so they are better and better at leading change. And so how do you bring this model into your own coaching and consulting? Mm -hmm. Yeah, so... um, in a bunch of different ways. So there, this mod, just the framework of distinguishing between horizontal development and vertical development is very powerful when we're thinking about change. Um, so just defining sponsorship in a new way, defining sponsorship in a more effective and concrete way um, is hugely valuable to actually helping sponsors be more effective. Um, so I find that vertical development is just more... Uh, has more leverage to it than horizontal development does when it comes to uh, when it comes to change leadership. So that just bringing the framework in, educating people about it, starting to think about it and talk about it as you're evaluating sponsors and coaching sponsors and setting changes up is is hugely beneficial. The development of of sponsors can get even more specific as there are tools out there. Um, there's a there are a number of assessments, or I should say, a handful of assessments. There are not a lot. There are a few. The two that I really like there is a 360 degree assessment that gives us an approximation of somebody's level of vertical development that is also tightly integrated with a competency framework. So we kind of get horizontal and vertical together, and we get that 360 feedback so we understand how a leader. Um, how a sponsor is showing up. We can also administer a tool called the Maturity Assessment Profile, which is a direct measure of somebody's stage of adult development. Um, This is a wonderful tool because it helps us actually understand what capacity a sponsor has currently and how... And then we can have a really interesting discussion about how does that match up to the change that they're leading and the capacity that that change requires from a from a sponsorship perspective. And then we can begin to work towards building that capacity for that, if assuming there's a gap, building the capacity for that sponsor to meet the demands of what, what it is that they want to accomplish inside their organization. Um, so this is a really wonderful framework that can come in come in through an educational perspective, a consulting perspective, a coaching perspective, a teaching perspective. Um, It can be applied in a number of different ways to support transformational change. As I'm listening to you, a couple of things come to mind for me. One, several, not several, who knows what several years ago means anymore, but um, Patrick Forth, um, 
who is with BCG, did a TED Talk. Um, and the basis of his talk was the fact that uh, artificial intelligence technology data has accelerated the race rate of change from linear to exponential. Mm-hmm. And one of the things that he called out about that was that leaders tend to lead from experience, and there are very few leaders who are experienced in leading exponential change. Mm-hmm. And he saw that as a major risk. And as I listen to you, it seems to me that the challenge is not very many leaders have advanced up this model have have you know developed vertically, if you will, efficiently to um, take the kind of charge that that needs to be taken in the world as it changes more and more rapidly. Yeah. The second, the second piece of that for me is that most uh, high potential leadership development kinds of programs that I have seen inside of organizations are about horizontal development. Yes. So how do we, how do we move the needle on this? Mm-hmm. Well, um, I love that same Ted talk. You shared that with me um, that you mentioned by Patrick Forth. And uh, I've been really jonesing on a, an op-ed by Thomas Friedman in the New York times from just a few days ago. Um, and he uh, talks about unknown unknowns. Um, he wrote a book in 2004 called The World is Flat about growing global interconnectedness. I'm actually looking at the op-ed right now, and I might read a snippet of this to you. Um, he says, the world has gotten so much flatter and interconnected since 2004. Heck, when I started writing that book, Facebook was just being launched. Twitter was only a sound, and the cloud was still in the sky. 4G was a parking place. LinkedIn was a prison. For most people, applications were what you sent to colleges. Skype was a typo and big data, big data was a rap star. And the iPhone was still Steve Jobs' secret pet project. <laughs> All of those connectivity tools, not to mention global trade and tourism, exploded after 2004 and really wired the world which is why our planet today is not just interconnected, it's interdependent and in many ways even fused. So one more paragraph and then I'll stop. This has driven a lot of economic growth, but it's also meant that when things go bad in one place, that trouble can be transmitted farther, faster, deeper, and cheaper than ever. So a virus-laden bat bites another mammal in China, that mammal it's sold in a Wuhan wildlife market. It infects a Chinese diner with a new coronavirus. And in a few weeks, all my public schools are closed and I'm edging six feet away from everyone in Bethesda. And that is to me a really wonderful description of the world that we live in now, right? Um, Where the change is so fast and things are so interconnected and something happens somewhere and it impacts all of us. And then to connect that and put an, an exclamation point on your second, the second point you made, most leadership development programs and organizations aren't really addressing this dynamic. They're focused on those skills and competencies, again, which are totally necessary. If you don't 
have the tools in your toolkit to do the work, it's not really going to matter. But if you don't have the capacity, you're really stuck. You're really stuck. And so that's a huge opportunity, both in the leadership space and in the change space, which are essentially the same thing, um, is to bring a more sophisticated um, you know, uh, approach to the work that actually is going to move the needle more effectively for, for the challenges that we face in the world. So before we wrap up, Jessica, is there, there anything else that you want to share with our listeners? Um, so I'm really, uh, I guess there's nothing off the top of my head. I'm really excited for people to listen to the podcast and to read the articles. I would be delighted to engage in a dialogue around all of this and am just very appreciative of the opportunity to share these ideas with the change management review community and, and see what happens, see what synchronicities emerge from um, starting this dialogue. It's such an important topic in my mind. And um, this is a huge opportunity for organizations to get a leg up, to get ahead and have a little bit of an advantage in executing their changes uh, more crisply and with, with more capacity. Um, to get more return on the investment of making change by coming at it from a vertical perspective. And I think that's really exciting. Jessica, it is always a joy and a, an opportunity for growth and learning when I talk to you. So thank you so much for your time. Thank you so much for sharing these articles with our readership and um, wanting to wish you be well and be safe. Yeah, thank you so much, Brian. Always a pleasure. We hope you've enjoyed this episode of the Change Management Review from the Field podcast with Brian Gorman, Managing Editor of Change Management Review, and Jessica Bronzer. Be sure to follow us on Facebook and like us on LinkedIn.